Beloved congregation, quite a number of years ago, there was a massive power failure that affected the one-third of the United States. All of a sudden, everywhere, the lights went out. One-third of this country was plunged into darkness. And because we are so reliant upon electricity, that meant that nothing was working anymore. It was quite an experience. We then realized how much we had taken it for granted and what a blessing it was when the lights came on again. The congregation, what a picture that is of what happened when Adam and Eve fell into sin, and with them, the entire human race. At that moment, this glorious world that God had created was plunged into darkness, into utter spiritual darkness. And because of that spiritual darkness, quickly the utter corruption of the fallen human heart began to manifest itself. As you know, boys and girls, it didn't take very long before the first murder was committed, when Cain murdered his own brother. And ever since then, the history of this world is a sad account of the multiple ways in which the wickedness and the depravity and the corruption of the human heart manifests itself. All of that as a result of the world being plunged into sin, of the lights going out. And what a miracle it therefore is that already in Genesis 3, God, as it were, turns the light back on by that original promise given to our parents in Genesis 3, verse 15, in which God declared to our first parents, that even though they had forged a friendship with the prince of darkness, that ultimately the seed of the woman would come in the fullness of time, and that through him sinners would be reconciled with God, that through him the light would return. And keeping that in mind, we want to consider the next verses in the Sermon on the Mount as we continue with our exposition of that remarkable sermon that Christ preached. A sermon addressed to the Jewish people who no longer understood the Scriptures, preached to a people who dwelt in spiritual darkness and ignorance, also because of the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, who had utterly corrupted the witness and the testimony of Scripture. So, to them, when they heard Christ preach, they had never, ever heard anything like it. No man ever spake like that. And yet, what he was preaching was not new in that sense. It was new to them. But he was simply restating the essential and foundational truths that already are sprinkled throughout the entire Old Testament Scriptures. And so let's turn to Matthew 5, and let's read again verses 13 through 16. 13 through 16, and there we hear the word of God. Ye are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So boys and girls, keep your Bibles open so you can read along with me as I give you my points. Hopefully you already have figured it out why I chose my points that are in the bulletin. So first of all, Christ is saying to his disciples and ultimately to every child of God, every Christian, that you are the salt of the earth. And so because we are the salt of the earth, we are called to be the salt of the earth. Secondly, in verse 14, look at verse 14, he says, Ye are the light of the world. And so because as believers we are the light of the world, we are also called to be that light. And thirdly, in verse 16, we are called to bring glory to the Father. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So the Christians calling in this world, in this dark world, in this morally corrupted world, first of all, to be the salt of the earth, secondly, to be the light of the world, and thirdly, to bring glory to the Father and so after giving us this wonderful portrait of who the people of God are, this wonderful portrait, who the citizens of God's kingdom are, Christ now proceeds to unpack for his disciples what the implications are of that. So those opening Beatitudes have all emphasized on a state of being. They've all emphasized who the Christian is. The Christian, as we have seen, is someone who knows his own poverty, is someone who grieves over that poverty, is someone who has learned to take his proper place before God, is someone who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, who is merciful, compassionate, who is pure with heart, whose holiness, whose Godliness proceeds from within, and who is a peacemaker, and who because of that identity will be hated by the world, will be persecuted by the world, will be accused falsely. And then Christ, as we saw last week, instructed his disciples and his children today, if that's the case, if the world hates you, because you so much resemble me. If the world hates you for my sake, then rejoice and be exceeding glad. And now in our text, Christ now proceeds to unpack for them and for us that 
the Christian, the child of God, the citizen of God's kingdom, must be what he is. Let me say that again. The Christian must be what he is. That's why already I hinted at it in just a few moments ago. Christ is not saying you must be the salt of the earth. He says you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you must be the light of the world. He says you are the light of the world. In other words, by virtue of the amazing work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating sinners who are dead in trespasses and sin, making us alive, new creatures in Christ, by virtue of that amazing work of the Spirit, that's what we become. And now the point of our text is that we must be what we are. And then Christ uses two powerful analogies. Again, simple analogies, simple examples that we can all understand. Certainly, his audience understood at once what he meant. First of all, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, we all use salt, and we all understand what we use salt for. We use salt to season our food. But in that culture, salt was used for other purposes as well. They did not have refrigeration. They were not able to preserve their food as we are by way of refrigeration. So if you wanted to preserve meat, you literally had to, you had to use salt and you had to rub the salt into that meat. And that's how you would preserve it. And so salt was a, a preservative, a commonly used preservative. But it was also understood that salt often also functioned as a, a disinfectant to, inha- to inhibit decay. And of course, in that culture, salt also would season. So three things we need to remember. It preserves, it disinfects, and it also seasons. Now Christ is saying to the disciples, he's saying to us, this is your place in this world. This is your place in the midst of a fallen humanity, in a world where you see the putrefying effects of sin, a world in which you are surrounded with moral depravity and with moral decay, your place in that world is to be like salt. In other words, your calling as my people, as my servants, your calling as the children of God is to so conduct yourself, to so function within that world that you that you actually, in this fallen world, you function as salt. We know that throughout the history of the world, the people of God have fulfilled that function. We know that also in the history of our modern world, in the last 2,000 years, and we know the history of God's church, how profoundly the church has influenced society. How God has used his people to inhibit 
the progression of wickedness and, and immorality and utter corruption. We see it when we consider the history of revivals. The great revivals that happened here in North America. Great awakening. How profoundly that influenced this nation. As a matter of fact, the, the influence of that revival lasted for generations and in some ways we can say that the benefits of what happened then are still with us today. We see it in other revivals, the history of England, the profound influence that the Puritans had, for instance, on that culture. They functioned as salt and by means of their influence, the, the manifestation of wickedness was inhibited. It was controlled. And Christ is saying, that's the calling of the church. That is the calling of the people of God to season, to influence, to infiltrate that morally corrupt culture of ours with biblical morality. I would even venture to say that the reason why our Western culture became the most successful culture in history, the most powerful culture, the most prosperous culture, is because of the, the, the influence of the Reformation, the influence of that great revival that happened in the 16th century. What a powerful impact that had on society. So, congregation, that is our calling today. Our calling today in the midst of our world is to function as the salt of our society. And, of course, sadly we realize that the church of Jesus Christ has failed significantly in that respect. And so suddenly we are awakening to alarming manifestations of depravity with which we are confronted every single day. A congregation, there is only one solution for that. As you know, I've said this before. This cannot be solved by politicians. This cannot be solved by legislation. We're dealing with the heart of men, the wickedness of humanity. And there's only one, there's only one way in which that can be reversed. That is, if God would be pleased once again to pour out His Spirit in a mighty way. If God would again revive His church. If once again the church of Jesus Christ also in North America would begin to function as that salt. And what a joyful day that would be. And we need to pray for it fervently. We need to pray for it persistently. Because it's astonishing. It's astonishing what that can accomplish in a culture. And so I'm convinced of what God has done in former ages. He's able to do in our generation as well. And so, of course, individually. That means as an individual Christian, I must be the salt of the environment in which God has placed me. That means as a Christian husband, I should be seasoning my marriage. 
seasoning my marriage with genuine godliness. As a Christian wife, I should be seasoning my marriage by being a godly wife, a godly spice. As parents, we are to season our family by being godly parents. As employers, as employees, we are to season the environment in which we function. So the question I have to ask myself, the question I want to ask you, are we doing that? Are we being the salt in individually as well? Are we being that salt of the earth? Do we have a seasoning, a preserving influence precisely in that environment in which God has placed us? And is that true wherever we go and whatever we do? Because so it ought to be. Because we are always called to be that salt of the earth. 24-7, the Christian is called to be that salt. Listen to what Paul writes to the Colossians. In Colossians 4, verse 6, he says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with that preserving salt. Seasoned with the salt of genuine godliness. And so the crucial question for me and for you is, does our walk, our daily walk, our behavior, do we have a seasoning effect on those with whom we interact? Do those that know us, do those that live with us, can they experience and sense the influence that we have by a godly walk and by a godly example? Or to use another expression, is our walk such that we diffuse, as it were, we diffuse the aroma of Christ? And then Christ addresses this negatively because he said, if you do not function as that salt, remember, he says, you are. And because you are, you must be. Because I have called you out of darkness into my marvelous light. I have regenerated you to be what you are, but you must be what you are. You must function as that salt. Because if the, if the salt lost his savor, wherewith all shall it be salted? Now we know that our salt, our table salt, is a stable compound. That means it does not degenerate. So what does Christ mean here? Well, there are various opinions about that. Uh, some commentators point to the fact that they, in those days, they had a very impure salt, salt mixed with other compounds, and that would happen if the salt was left to itself, it would just decay, decay and degenerate, and it would utterly lose its function. It would be good for nothing. Now, Dr. Lord Jones, in his commentary, says, salt will always be salt. And he's, he's simply saying, what Christ is saying here, he's talking about something that cannot possibly be. So his, his argument is that if we really are the salt of the earth, if we really are the people of God, if we really are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we cannot but be salt. 
And so uh, Lloyd Jones argues salt cannot not be salt. Because salt that is not salt is worthless. And it's good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot. And so what Christ is, of course, alluding to here is the sad reality that was manifested among the people of Israel in their history. And the sad reality that is with us until this day. That so many who profess the name of Christ by their very walk and by their very life contradict that profession and who ultimately do not exude that positive, that preserving, that seasoning influence of a genuine godly life. It is good for nothing. So one commentator puts it this way. He says, we now live in a world in the West where sadly the world has seasoned the church. The world has seasoned the church rather than the church seasoning the world. And so also in Mark 9 verse 50 Christ says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost his saltness, he says, wherewith will you season it? A congregation, our current condition, the alarming manifestation of depravity that is now beginning to overwhelm us, that is now coming at us from every direction, is because long ago, The church failed to be the salt of the earth. There was a time where the vast majority of the citizens of this land were professing Christians. That include that the majority of legislators were professing Christians. And what a seasoning effect it had. How how that reality, how that inhibited the, the brazen manifestation of wickedness and depravity that is now becoming the norm of the day. That's all because gradually, rather than the church seasoning the culture, we have allowed the culture to season the church. And thereby the church has lost its witness has lost its testimony. And you can see how the world is treating the church with utter disdain. They're casting it out there. They're trotting it underfoot. And we need to begin with ourselves, congregation. To what, if, to what extent have we allowed our world, our culture, to season our lives rather than we seasoning the world in which we live. Because what's obvious from this text, that a tasteless Christianity, a nominal Christianity, a Christianity in name only, greatly dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be the salt of our environment. We are to be that salt that seasons, that preserves, to bring glory 
to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the ungodly have always resisted that seasoning influence. That's why Jesus talked about persecution. That's why he said, if you truly are one of mine, if you truly reflect this character that I have outlined for you, you can count on it that the world will hate you and will persecute you. And yet, in light of that fact, in light of the fact that Christ tells them ahead of time how they will be dealt with by this hostile world, he reinforces powerfully what we are called to be in this world. Called to be the salt of the earth. Secondly, Christ is saying, ye are the light of the world. Again, Christ tells us who we are as Christians. He's saying to the disciples, this is who you are by the grace of God. You have been regenerated. Not only to be salt, but you have been regenerated to be the light of the world. Ye are the light of the world. And in both statements, in verse 13 and verse 14, the ye in the Greek is very powerful. And so several commentators point out that actually what Christ was saying, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You And you alone are the light of the world. And so it is, congregation. Without the church of Jesus Christ, there is nothing to inhibit the depravity of this world. There's nothing to slow it down. There's nothing to come against it. But that's also true when it comes to the light. What that means, congregation, that we, the people of God, this congregation, we are the only source of light in this dark world. A world that wallows in spiritual darkness. There is only one source of light, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. That's that's what Jesus is saying. You, and you alone, you are the light of this world. So what Christ is teaching us here is not only are we to live the truth, not only are we to influence our environment, to season it with genuine godliness, with genuine Christianity, but we must also let the light of God's truth shine into this dark world of ours. So if you want to connect the two, the salt and the light. So in the salt, Christ is saying you have to live the truth. And by the light is saying you have to bear witness to the truth. You have to proclaim the truth. So what did Christ say about John the Baptist? In light of this, John 5 verse 35, he said... He was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. That's what he was. John the Baptist was a witness of light. 
And he came at a time when there had been great darkness in the people of Israel, in the nation of Israel, when for four centuries not a prophet had arisen, and suddenly God raises up a man to again bear witness to his truth, to be that shining light. And I hope you realize the intimate connection, congregation, between living God's truth and proclaiming God's truth. Those two belong inseparably together. And so Christ is saying, you must honor me by how you live, and you must honor me by bearing witness to my truth, to let the light of my truth shine into this dark world. And again, that's the calling of each individual Christian. It is your calling to be a light exactly where God has placed you in your environment, in your family, in your extended family, in your work environment. You are called to let the light of the truth shine by means of you. And so that calls us to self-examination. That calls me to self-examination. And so does my life, does your life, does it produce light or does it produce darkness? And you realize, of course, that's why sin in the life of God's children is so serious. And a true believer will never take sin lightly, but still at times we do take sin too lightly. And when we sin, especially when we sin in such a way that those around us are impacted by our sinful behavior, in whatever way it may be, as father, as mother, as husband and wife, as employer, as employee, if that sinful behavior of mine impacts those around me, then I bring darkness rather than light. And then we grieve We grieve the Holy Spirit. Christ is saying, you are to be a light bearer. That's your calling as a Christian. That's the mark of a faithful follower of Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. And so this is, again, you see, this is where we are called to self-examination congregation, also by means of this passage. This is what we mean by discriminating preaching. And we need to ask ourselves, am I really, does my life affirm in some measure that I really am united to this Christ? Because if Christ is the light of the world, and if by faith we are united to him, and that's what all true Christians are, they are all living branches of the vine, they are all united to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you see, you cannot be united to the light source without bearing light yourself. And so a very simple example, boys and girls, and I don't want to be misunderstood, but Let me put it this way. When you come home and when you plug in a lamp, that lamp is going to work because you're plugging it into your power source. 
And so with the deepest reverence, a true child of God is plugged into Christ permanently. There is a permanent connection between the source of light and we as his people who are called to reflect that light. And so a true Christian is called to be a reflector of his light who says, I am the light of the world. So in John 12, verse 36, Jesus says, while you have light, believe in the light that you may be the children of light. Now again, if you have a computer concordance, just type in that phrase, children of light. You'd be surprised that it shows up several times in the New Testament. So that's another way of describing who a Christian is. A Christian is a child of light. By virtue of regeneration, we have become children of light. And our calling is to let that light shine. Turn with me to Philippians 2 verse 15, where this truth is powerfully affirmed. Philippians 2 verse 15. And there we read, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. And here it comes, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's it. That's the world in which we live. That's the world in which we are called to be salt, but also light, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. There you have it. Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And so what a responsibility is ours, congregation. What a responsibility we have if we profess the name of Christ. If we claim to be one of his own, then our life had better manifest that. That's the whole point that Jesus makes. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so profound, because as we will see, as we work our way through it in countless ways, Christ compels us to engage in self-examination. And so in Ephesians 5, verse 8, the apostle exhorts us, saying, walk as children of light. There you have it. Again, that expression, walk as children of light. In other words, live your life in such a way, conduct yourself in such a way that you cannot but diffuse light. Philippians 2, verse 15 Paul writes that you may be blameless and harmless in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, you are, all, you are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. That's who the ungodly are. The ungodly are the children of darkness. They are the children of the night. And Jesus said in John 3 that by nature men love darkness rather than light. That's why the world hates light bearers. That's why the world hates those Christians that are functioning as the salt and the light. Because that light that emanates from a genuine godly life, that light condemns the ungodly. It exposes the darkness of their life. And yet Christ is not saying that we should be intimidated by that. 
Because, of course, the wonderful truth is that God pleases to use His people, His church, as light bearers to bring the gospel to those who dwell in darkness. And He has promised that that labor will not be in vain. And that God will use the bearing of that witness, the bearing of that light to draw sinners out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel. And dear believer, that's your story and that's my story. We once also dwelt in darkness, but God sovereignly used other light bearers to cause that light to shine upon us and to penetrate that spiritual darkness of our soul. And that's why, of course, if we are united to the source of light, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I'm the light of the world, that means the more we abide in him, the more we will shine, the more light we will emanate. There you see again the connection with John 15, that crucial chapter of the Bible where Christ so powerfully delineates to us the essential activity of the Christian life that is to abide in Him, to remain with Him, to stay connected with Him, to live in fellowship with Him, to walk with Him, to abide in His Word. Congregation, are you doing that? Are we abiding in Him? Or is our Christianity a casual Christianity? Is it a hit-and-miss Christianity? Or are we committed daily, daily to be with Christ? That's God's desire. That's what Christ is saying, and He promises us, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And the more you abide in me, the more I will abide in you, and the more fruit you will bear. And the more my Father will be glorified. You see, the more we abide in Christ, the more we live out of Him, the more we walk with Him daily, the more we feed upon His Word, the more that will manifest itself in how I live, the more Christ-like I become. And Christ, of course, was the ultimate salt of the earth. Christ was the ultimate light of the world. But we are to follow him in that way. We are, as the people of God, we are his representatives. We are to carry out and to exemplify who he is. We represent him in this world. Proverbs 4 verse 18 says, But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. In John 15, verse 8, Jesus says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And in light of this text, we could say, Herein is my Father glorified if you really function as that salt in your environment. Herein is my Father glorified if you really allow the light of His truth to emanate by means of you. And then he addresses it negatively when he says, 
a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So Christ purposely uses a, a dramatic illustration that really made no sense. The idea of, for, for a Jewish man, the idea of lighting a candle and then putting a bushel, a basket over it, would seem utterly ridiculous. Because why would you light the candle if you then put a bushel over it? But again, Christ said it purposely to arrest the attention of those that heard him. And he's saying, let it not be so with you. Let your life not be so that you end up hiding that light, concealing that light, putting it under a bushel, whatever that bushel may be. So the evident point that he is making here is that light possessors must be light transmitters. Let me say that again. Light possessors must be light transmitters. And so in Luke 8, verse 16, he addresses the same thing. He addressed this theme several times in the gospel. And there he says, No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. And so the point Christ is making, that my Christianity and your Christianity must be as visible as a burning candle on a candlestick. Our Christianity must be as visible as a city that is on a hill. And of course, in that world, they did not have the around-the-clock illumination that we have today. And so in that culture, and probably from where Christ was seated, they could see one of the cities. And many of them were built on a hill. And you could not help but notice that city on the hill. Christ was saying to his disciples and to us, your Christianity, your life must be as obvious as a city on the hill. Or to put it differently, your and my life needs to be a visible display of God's invisible grace. That's how it works. The invisible grace that is planted in our soul by the Holy Spirit, that invisible grace has to manifest itself visibly. That's what Christ is saying. A congregation, we need to realize that your and my life is a visible statement. It is. It's a visible statement of who you really are. That's why those who know us most intimately, those who live with us, our children, our spouses, they know who we are. Parents, I want to emphasize that. Your children know who you are. They live with you. They see with you. They interact with you. They see how you interact with your, with your spouses. They see the choices you make. They see the priorities of your life. They, they know who we are. And so what kind of a statement am I making? I begin with myself. 
What statement is my life making? Is it a positive one? Is it a negative one? And lest anyone misunderstand him, he then says in verse 16, let your light so shine before men. So Christ does not allow the disciples to simply think in generalities. No, he he becomes very specific, as if he says, let me explain to you what I mean. Let me explain to you what I mean. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. There you have it again. So that your godliness is visible. Your godliness is tangible. Your godliness will manifest itself and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so that means that as a Christian we can never relax, can we? Christ is saying we are to be diligent when it comes to this. Again, let me let the word of God speak for itself. Titus 2 verse 14 who, that is Christ, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That's what it means to be the salt and light of the earth. To be zealous. Not to earn God's favor. Not to earn a reputation as the Pharisees did. And when we get to chapter 6, we're going to deal with the phony religion of the Pharisees, contrasted with what true religion looks like. Yet zealous of good works. Because Christ is saying, when men see your good works, when they see your godliness, when you are that shining light, when my truth emanates from you, my Father in heaven will be greatly glorified. So in Titus 3, verse 8, the same book, he says, and listen carefully, and they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. There you have it. The connection between believing and how we behave. Because true faith works by love. True faith is always fruitful. True faith manifests itself in godliness. But Christ is saying, what I'm calling you to is such a level of godliness that the world must see it. They can't help but see it. And not like the Pharisees who would stand on the corner for maximum exposure so that they could draw attention to themselves. No, Christ is saying, so that your Father will be glorified. To put it very, very simply, that by your behavior, by your walk, by your conduct, you are drawing people's attention to the God whom you serve, to the God whose child you profess to be. And again in Titus, Titus 2 verse 7, Paul says, in all things... Showing thyself a pattern of good works. There you have it. A pattern of good works. My congregation, and I begin with myself, is your life, is my life, is there a pattern? Can those who live with us, those with whom we interact, do they see a pattern of godliness? 
a pattern of being that salt and to being that light. And so true Christianity must be a highly visible display of invisible grace precisely where God has placed us. Years ago, I once heard, listening to the radio while I was driving, a statement I've never forgotten. And this, this pastor was saying, a Christian must flourish where God has planted him. And so God knows exactly where you dwell. He knows he had, by his sovereign government, he has placed you exactly where you are today. Exactly where you are today. And it's exactly where you are today in terms of your family, your extended family, the workplace, whatever it may be. It's exactly there that we must shine. Exactly in that environment. Looking unto Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith, and so run the race that is set before us. We need to realize that for the ungodly, that you and I may be the only Bible they will ever read. Can the ungodly read the Bible in me? Am I a living commentary of the truth of God's Word? So that you will glorify your Father which is in heaven. Oh, what a blessing. When my life draws people's attention to the God whom I serve. That's the point that Jesus is making. And of course, the reason, as a matter of fact, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Christ talks about his father as their father and glorify your father which is in heaven. To put it simply, congregation, there's nothing that so pleases the father as when his people begin to resemble his son because the father loves his son and he has chosen you in his son to become like his son. Chosen you in his son to bear witness to his son. And the more we resemble Christ, the more Christ-like we become, the more we function as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the more pleased he will be. That's what the Father longs for. He longs to see the reflection of the glory of his son in the lives of his children. Because we've been predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. So Jesus says in John 14 verse 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And now listen carefully. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. The more we love Christ, the more delighted the Father is. The more we resemble Christ, the more our Heavenly Father will be glorified. So the question is, are we fulfilling our sacred calling? As a congregation, that is something we have to come to grips with. We are a young congregation. God has placed us here 
in this area to be the salt and light, to be a blessed influence on our environment and to be bearers of the light. Are we prepared to fulfill that calling? That's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we have that serious call to self-examination. When Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he, listen carefully, that doeth the will of my Father. So in other words, he's saying, your profession of my name will only be genuine if you prove to be a doer of my Father's will. Because that's the Father's will. The Father who loves his Son, his will is that we believe in his Son and that we follow his Son, that we abide in his Son. And so we have homework. I have homework. You have homework. It's one thing to profess the name of Christ and to be recognized by your own people as such. But is the world out there, do they recognize in me and in you that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Turn with me to 1 Peter 2 verse 9. It was that I wish to conclude. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Powerful passage. But ye. That amazing word, but. That word, but, that displays the sovereign grace of God. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, search our hearts to see whether there be any wicked way within us and lead us in the way everlasting. We have heard out of the mouth of Christ what we are called to be because of who we are. We have been regenerated to be the salt of the earth and are called to be that salt. We have been regenerated to be the light of the world and are called to be that light. Lord, forgive us all the ways in which we fail in that regard. How we have failed individually, but also that church at large, to be that seasoning and preserving influence in our ungodly culture, allowing ourselves to be seasoned by the world rather than the opposite. How often we have failed to let our light shine into the darkness of our world. Oh God, forgive us and grant us a rich measure of thy spirit. Equip us individually and as a congregation to be that salt and to be that light. And so remember us in mercy. Enable us in all honesty to come before thee 
to confess our sins and shortcomings. And may we fervently seek grace to be what we are called to be. That we would learn increasingly what it means to abide in Christ and he in us so that we may bring forth much fruit. Again, we pray for those who know nothing of this, who are still dead in trespasses and sins. Lord, awaken them. Cause the light of the gospel to penetrate into their dark souls even today. Go with us now homeward. Keep us safely. Gather with us in this evening hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.